Hello, friends. Welcome to the Tales That Bind Us podcast. I'm Katie. And I'm Alex. And we missed you. We've been gone for a couple of months due to some unfortunate circumstances, but now we're back stronger than ever. Today, we have a special guest for you. We've deviated from the norm of our podcast. Rather than talking to a third party about their favorite book, we're going to be talking about something much more important. Me and my favorite book. I came across this book a few months ago, and it's really changed my approach to learning and life in general. And I loved it so much that I actually contacted the author, and I wrote him a very generous fan letter, if I must say. And he agreed to talk to us, so we have about over an hour of some really good material here. I hope you enjoy. Without further ado, here is Jake Gibbs. Okay, so... Obviously, your inspirations for the book come from wanting to help people pay attention. Is this something you noticed as a professor, that people just weren't paying attention as much, or did you struggle with this on your own, actually? The way it happened was uh, I, uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, I'd been reading um, Robert Piercy's book, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh, so I was learning a little bit about Zen from his perspective. And also the, around that time, I started training in the martial arts. And in Japanese martial arts anyway, uh, Zen, traditionally, Zen has been a, uh, a huge component. And uh, so I, I, I started uh reading more and more about Zen, and then uh, it spread out to reading about mindfulness and Buddhism in, in general. But what occurred to me was that all through my education and uh, the way I was teaching my students to pay attention uh, was the wrong approach. And as I investigated it, I realized that uh, most people uh, take the wrong approach to uh, paying attention. And what, what, what I called that way or approach or attitude uh, toward learning uh, was fighting with your books. It's uh, what, what Roddy and I also called the, uh, the Rambo approach to learning or the combat approach to learning or the war approach to learning. And what was going on, and, and you, could, you can probably go back in your, your own education or anything, in sports and in dance, uh, whatever you've learned to do, is this is the common approach. Um, what we're told is that in order to perform well, and to be motivated, we have to focus on what we want to get out of the performance or what the, uh, the goals, the objectives, or uh, the extrinsic rewards, uh, the external results are. Um, in, I guess, in military terms, you would say it would be uh, focusing on the mission when you're fighting with your books. And people will tell you to, uh, to keep your eye on the prize, keep your focus on the external results, keep in mind what you want to get 
from what you're doing in order to stay motivated and stay inspired in doing. Also, it's an aggressive approach, uh, which we call part of the uh, fighting with your books is what we call forced concentration. That's the uh, style of paying attention. And uh, if you ask students and, and others to, uh, to characterize um, what it's like when they try to focus, it's usually this brain-smoking, mind-knuckling approach where you Call bear it, I think it's the war of the mind in the book. Pardon? I think you said something like it was a civil war of the mind yeah. trying to regain control of it somehow. Yeah, the, the idea is what you have to do is bear down and focus and focus and grit your teeth. Uh, and people use phrases like mind over matter, uh, hit the books. And I think we mentioned in the books, uh, I remember talking to one female student and uh, I said, you know, what, what's it uh, like when you're, you're really, really uh, focused on concentrated on what you're studying? And she said, a friend of mine who is a male uh, has my favorite description, which is he sits down to study and says he's going to make that book my bitch. <laughs> and all this sounded pretty aggressive to me. And the other thing is when I asked students and when I asked myself, when people had tried to teach me to pay attention, uh, the instructions were pretty nonspecific. Uh, they were pretty vague. And for example, I, I can remember uh, coaches screaming, bear down, bear down, focus, focus. And that was it. There wasn't any, there weren't any uh, additional hints on how you bear down and how you focus. And the whole enterprise, this whole approach to fighting with your books, uh, I realized it was pretty unpleasant. And it was probably the reason that we all have to, or until we get the right attitude or the right frame or approach, that we're really forcing ourselves to study. We're knuckling down, we're honing in, uh, we're fighting with our books. What I learned from martial arts in reading Zen in the martial arts and also from uh, Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance and a lot of additional reading is that there's another approach. Uh, and that's what we call the mindful approach or dancing with your books. Instead of trying to defeat what you're studying or overcome it, or as some people say, for example, conquer the material. You're not in a fight. There's not some objective enemy out there, the lessons to be learned or the books to be read or whatever it is. Um, a more effective way of studying is to view it as a dance or take the mindful approach. And here I'm using a, um, fairly general uh, definition of mindfulness. And one of the best was, I think, uh, or at least one of the most popular was provided by uh, John Kabat-Zinn, uh, who introduced mindfulness uh, to medicine uh, 30 years ago. Uh, and he says it's 
attention, but it's an attention in a very particular way. Uh, first, it's intentional. It's on purpose, of course. Uh, and then it's attention to the present moment, but it's non-judgmental attention. In the more forced concentration, you're always judging yourself when you find that you're not paying attention, you're beating yourself back to pay attention, or you're saying what I have to do is focus more on the goals so they'll give what I'm doing more importance. In the dancing with your books approach, it's a more open approach and it's an openness to what's happening in the present moment or what you're doing in the present moment. And yeah, I, I, sorry to interrupt. No, Keep that's going. fine. Anytime. I, I can. I think uh, that's something that a lot of people don't directly intuit about mindfulness is that you do start off with sort of an implicit idea of why you're doing it. You want to pay more attention. You want to be more focused. You want to do your work efficiently and not be bogged down by your thoughts. But as soon as you start your meditation practice, your agenda should go off the table. Like you should be completely in that moment and paying attention is precisely what it is, right? It's kind of a, a little bit of a paradox, I think. Oh, Some yeah. people don't necessarily grasp the first go around. It, it's very paradoxical because you're not going to do something unless there's an external reward. That's just the way we, we're are. we are. But the more you focus on the goal or objective, say it's uh, learning calculus, uh, the more you focus on the objective of, say, getting an A in the course, the more of your attention is in the future, what you'll get for what you're doing, rather than in the present, what you're doing to get it, and what you're getting from the doing in the moment. So with the, the mindful approach, uh, the idea is to stay in the present doing whatever you're doing. Say uh, you're doing uh, differential equations or uh, some particular technique that you're trying to, to learn. The idea is to stay in the present moment. And once you start judging how you're doing or how much you're achieving or how close you are to your goal, that's taking you away from the doing itself, which is what's going to help you attain that goal. So what you have to do is, at least momentarily, while you're studying, let go of that goal. Forget about the A, forget about the recognition you'll get for the A, forget about the several thousand dollars uh, that your parents will give you uh, for getting the A, as I used to do with my kids. Uh, that's all in the future. The only thing right now is studying in the present moment. And what you do is, it's a, a certain kind of alertness or openness to what's going on. So you're always monitoring, but in the present. And secondly, you, you recognize when your mind wanders from the present, when you're thinking, ah, it'll be really great when uh, I, I have a, a command of this particular mathematical technique, uh, I'll really be able to uh, uh, impress people with this. I'll get another A, which will be great for my GPA, and I'll be able to get into graduate school and so on. 
once you recognize that, recognize it happens, you don't judge yourself, you don't criticize yourself, although you'll do some of that. You're, you're aware of it when you do it, do it. But you recognize that you're being pulled away from the moment by these thoughts of the future or anything else. Like, you know, this, these equations make me sad or more likely these equations are frustrating and so on. When you recognize you're there, you're no longer present doing what you're doing, which is calculus. So what you do, uh, do when you observe yourself or recognize yourself wandering from the current moment is you just observe it without, without judgment. You don't criticize for yourself for it, and you gently bring yourself back to the present moment and just study calculus again. So it's, it's a process of alertness, recognition, observation or witness, and returning the wandering mind to the present moment. And that's the, uh, the big difference. The, that, there's some of the differences, but the, the big difference between uh, fighting with your books and dancing with your books is you don't see yourself as conquering material or uh, you you and the books and the activity aren't something separate. You and the books are, are one. You're joining together in that moment in order to learn calculus or whatever the subject is that you want to learn or whatever you're doing in the present moment. So that that was my realization. Um, and what I started doing was I, I, I taught mostly uh, research methods and statistics. Uh, and what I started doing was incorporating those methods uh, into learning. I would present them to, to students and then have them try to apply them. Uh, and I started writing a book, uh, which was this was back in oh the mid '80s. I started writing it. The original book was published in 1990, I believe. Uh, but I started writing a book entitled "The Zen Approach to Statistical Reasoning." And at the, at the time, I was teaching at Rutgers, and I had one of my colleagues read the first draft, and she said that she really liked it. Uh, but why limit it to statistics? Why not just broad, broaden it to any kind of schoolwork or anything you're studying? And so that's what I did. And that's, that's where the, uh, the original book, um, uh, Dancing With Your Books, The Zen Way to Study, uh, came out in 1990. And then uh, Roddy and I updated it in, and added a lot to it. Uh, in 2013. So the, the whole point was we had, we had the, the, we felt, or I felt at that time that um, first we really weren't teaching people to pay attention. And then we had the wrong idea of what attention was. Uh, it's not forced concentration, it's openness and awareness and the activity of 
bringing yourself back to the moment again and again and again when the mind wanders, but doing it non-critically, non-judgmentally, and gently. And that was it. And as somebody who is studying um, education and trying to become a teacher, I'm interested in some of the specific ways you tried to incorporate mindfulness and these techniques in the classroom and how did the students respond to that? Because um, in an educational system, whether it's high school or college, it can often be very goal-oriented, as you said. Um, and so mindfulness might be a new technique for some of these students to use. Oh, it is. And it's, it's very difficult for all of us uh, to get away from uh, extrinsic rewards and goals and objectives and missions and so on and bringing them into what our, our, we're doing. Uh, and in some cases, there, there was uh, quite a bit of resistance to that, that uh, people uh, generally didn't understand uh, that they didn't have to give up their goals and objectives and so on. Indeed, they're very important. Your particular objective shapes what you're doing in the moment. But if you keep, but the, the objective is always in the future. And what you're doing to reach the objective is in the present. But if you keep your mind in the present and part of it in the future, uh, it's diluting your attention and the energy. So the idea is, and you, you know, your 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 goals determine what what kind of activities you're going to be involved in. For example, if you want to be uh, a musician, uh, for a lot of your education, you're going to be involved in different kind of activities than uh, if you want to be a, an electrical engineer. Uh, so set your goals and then while you're studying or writing or taking an exam or whatever you're doing to achieve your obje obje objectives, you have to let them go because they're taking focus away from the present moment. In the combat approach, you're saying, always have the mission in mind. But in the dancing with your books approach, rather than fighting with your books, you're saying, okay, set your goals and objectives, and they can change over time, or you can evaluate them when you want to. But when you're involved in the activities that are going to help you attain those goals, focus on the activities themselves, not the goals, or it's going to dilute your energy. Um, one area where I ran into to, uh, problems was because mindfulness is uh, based in uh, Buddhism, uh, some students couldn't get away from some kind of religious component associated with it. Uh, they didn't see that uh, there are aspects that, of it that are just secular. And whether you, you have any religious beliefs or none at all, uh, it doesn't matter. You can still use these techniques. But uh, as soon as I brought up, well, 
these techniques have been away around for more than 2,500 years and were originally uh, taught by the uh, the Buddha. Uh, it created um, some problems for students, and I, I had uh, I, I introduced I would always introduce the the class to uh, um, mindfulness meditation, and we we do it for a few minutes uh, before class started. Uh, and I did have some cases where uh, students of certain uh, religious persuasions, usually fundamentalism, which you can have in any religion, there are, you know there are uh, fundamentalist uh, Muslims, Christians, even uh, Buddhist, uh, but the techniques were independent of that. But they they just um, wouldn't believe me. They uh, they thought that. Uh, Jesus or Muhammad would get mad at him or something. Uh, That's really that funny. I, I almost find that uh, mindfulness is almost the this of a uh, religion. You're trying to connect yourself with observable reality. You're not chanting as in uh, other meditation practices like mantra meditation. You're actually just trying to take in your experience on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Right. Uh... And indeed, most religions do have a uh, contemplative component. Uh, you're not you're not going to see it in a lot of uh, the religions in this country. Uh, but you know, Christianity. I mean, that was the the uh, big schism between uh, the Roman Church. And the Eastern Orthodox Church was the uh, the Roman Church wanted it to be belief based, and the Eastern Orthodox Church wanted it to be a contemplative method where you realized uh, religious truths through meditation and other contemplative techniques. And it's the same is true uh, in. Um, Oh, in um, just about any religion you can think of, even even Protestants. I mean, uh, the Methodism was uh, originally the original founder was a, uh, a contemplative. The guy was a mystic. But anyway, that's the the problem is that when I had uh, some students with strong fundamental, uh, usually Christian. Uh, beliefs, uh, they felt somehow that uh, they shouldn't be shouldn't be doing anything uh, that was or originated uh, in an, another religion that they did not believe in. So yes, I did run into those problems, uh, and. Some some students just think meditation is strange and uh, or pseudoscience or something. Yeah, and can't can't uh, uh, really see the benefits. But it's it's a lot easier to convince people now uh, that there's been so many uh, methodologically sound scientific studies uh, that have supported. Um, you know, the neurological uh, and physical 
and psychological benefits of uh, mindfulness meditation. And uh, also one uh, review of the literature that was done a few years back showed that uh, it had some uh, pretty positive uh, influences on our uh, traditional goals and learning. Uh, yeah, I read something that students who were trained in meditation actually score higher on exams such as the GRE. And I, I found this one part of your book really interesting where people have testing anxiety and while they're testing, they're worried about how you know they didn't study enough or they're, they're still thinking about the last problem or something. And that can often completely impede your concentration on the question you're reading. And you might miss a word or something in between then. So to me, it's really amazing how often this happens in my own experience where, you know, I'm criticizing myself and I'm not even aware of it. It's like my, almost like my thought processes aren't always transparent. And I've always felt that mindfulness was just a way of opening that up. And then once you're able to observe them, um, I'm not going to say they stop completely, but they don't really get to you as much and they don't slow you down as much. Um, Could you talk about maybe a little bit of how that works, just being aware of your thought processes can actually change them somehow? Uh, yes, uh, because what, what you do is you're, you're actually studying the way your mind works. Well, I'm not, I'm not saying studying in the sense of uh, the, the way we traditionally analyze things, but what, what you're doing is you're observing uh, the way your mind works. And by doing that, you're learning something about it. What you're learning is that I mean, if if you do, you just sit and follow your breath uh, for a few minutes, uh, you see just how often your attention goes from the breathing into something that happened in the past and something that happened in the future, and you're not being in the present. So what you learn is that your mind wanders, and it's a natural thing. You'll you'll go all over the place. But you, what you also learn is that through the practice of mindfulness, simply by paying attention without judgment and being gentle with your thoughts, you can bring yourself back to the present again and again and again. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And if you're trying to perform at anything, you're better off having your mind in the present, which is the only reality there is, physically at least at the moment, rather than have it spread out into the past, oh, gee, I should have studied more, or the future, Christ, I'm going to fail this test, and I'll be humiliated, and I'll have to drop out of school, and then you do catastrophic thinking where you know, I'll drop out of school and I'm going to be homeless and my parents will be embarrassed and, you know, I'll have to beg for food and on and on and on. Uh, that's not a very effective way to do anything and your performance will suffer from it because you're not where the only place where you can be, which is the now, the present moment. So just by, just by being mindful, by, uh, observing you gain those insights and also you you feel more comfortable 
uh, in the present moment. You don't always have to be scurrying to the future to uh, cheer yourself up with thinking about, uh, God, once I get out of this this exam, things will be great, or uh, next time I'll study harder and so on. You just stick with it. Just stay there and keep coming back to whatever's happening right now, which is the only reality there is. So that one, one, one form of uh, mindfulness meditation, and you may be familiar with this, is um, it's called insight meditation, Vipassana meditation. And the, uh, the insight is you learn how your mind works. Of course, you learn a lot of other things about yourself, including that you're not a self. Uh, but the important thing from uh, for our discussion is you see how your mind wanders into the past and the future when you're supposed to be doing something in the present. And it's not helping you uh, to be more effective or efficient in the present moment. So, I mean, that's, that's the whole key to it is just to stay in the present and be steadfast without beating yourself up, without any hard pushing or pulling to just open to the present moment as it unfolds, doing what you should do in order to reach your goal or objective. I think this is something that people actually experience more than they know. As you talked about earlier, you were introduced through martial arts. I actually came across it when I was skateboarding. I actually thought I invented it. I was like, oh, if I just, you know, don't judge these thoughts, then, you know, they won't get to me. And I won't actually identify, I won't attach to these feelings of, oh, I'm bad, or I'm not going to do this, or I'm going to look stupid. I can see, as you said, the ephemerality you learn through Vipassana meditation. If you're really following your thoughts, you realize that they don't last forever. If you feel bored while you're studying, if you really investigate the feeling of boredom, it doesn't last forever. No. And that that's a key term, too, is to um, inquire, but not not the way we usually inquire, where uh, we want to do some kind of analysis. Uh, the inquiry there is just to be open, just to, to look at it, uh, just to embrace it. But I mean, especially when you're uh, you're doing some something like skateboarding, uh, any time you're criticizing yourself, you're taking yourself out of the moment. You're taking yourself away from the skateboarding yourself itself because evaluation, by definition, criticism of that kind is always in the past. So you have to be criticizing something you just did. If, you're if your mind is focused on something that you just did, then it isn't focused on what you're currently doing. And that's how you can make even more mistakes. Well, you should write a book, Alex. The, <laughs> the mindful way to skateboard. <laughs> the mindful way to sk skateboard, even better than the Zen way to skateboard. It's broader. Yes, I mean, I really do think that you can read your book, The Mindful Way to Study, and apply it to whatever you're doing, whether you're trying to learn new cooking recipes, grocery shopping, uh, just transporting yourself. I don't know, well, commuting. That, that was one of the things I realized that, that I, I kind of stumbled onto. I said, you yeah, know, this is such a big deal and 
learning the, the martial arts and in uh, Japan, especially Zen has had a tremendous influence on the culture. And, uh, you know, there's the, uh, the tea ceremony, uh, flower arranging, the martial arts. Uh, one of the early uh, Zen books that was very famous was uh, Zen and the Art of Archery. Uh, and then it expanded from, from there. There's a, yeah, the Zen of tango dancing, the Zen of falling in love. Uh, there's a book by a couple of brothers, the Burgers, that was out years ago on the Zen of driving, how to drive a car uh, mindfully. It's been applied to everything. And when you look at mindfulness, uh, I can't think of other anything other than skateboarding that it hasn't been applied to. And somebody may have already done that. Right. I want to get back to the neuroscience really quick because between the two releases you've had, uh, actually, I think it was a Harvard study, Sarah Lazar. I hope I'm saying her name right. She released two studies. And the first one, she just merely examined the brains of longtime meditators, people who have been practicing Vipassana for more than seven years mm-hmm. and found on average their cortical thickness at 50 years old was just as healthy as those who are 25. And while that might not mean a lot of, might not mean a lot to some people, it's actually pretty amazing because your cortex is just shrinking um, continuously after a certain age. And to see that they actually slowed the aging process through meditation, I think is astonishing. And then she actually went even further to do a second study where they taught mindfulness to people who have never done meditation and never had any special interest in it. And just over eight weeks, they showed the same thing, that your gray matter can actually increase just from practicing you know, 30 to 40 minutes a day. Did you, was that, a, I don't know, how did that feel seeing that? It kind of like almost uh, makes it real, right? Yeah, you know, of course, I, I, you know, I've been delighted uh, by a, a lot of the research been, that has been done, especially uh, the... Uh, neurological research. A lot, a lot has been done by uh, this guy, uh, Richardson. He's, he's done a gang of it. There's uh, a lot being done at the uh, University of Pennsylvania right now. And there's just all kinds of studies uh, showing that mindfulness practice uh, can have a, uh, an effect on how our brains function and on the shape of the brain, uh, which, you know, Zen masters and others have uh, have been saying for years, but there wasn't any empirical evidence to support it. Uh, now there is. Uh, and you know, th- this makes it uh, much more acceptable to students today than it was 30 years ago when you say, look, I, I can demonstrate to you empirically through some methodologically solid uh, research studies, you know, using the uh, uh, the fMRI uh, to scan the brain, which is the gold standard, that doing this kind of thing directly affects your brain. we we can we can measure it. And uh, also we can measure uh, levels of anxiety anxiety uh, and other negative emotional states uh, and we find that uh, it has an effect on them 
And while the effect size isn't huge, um, it's moderate, but it's uh, at least as strong as other kinds of interventions uh, that have, have been uh, mindfulness-based interventions uh, have at least a strong, as strong of an effect as other kinds of inf- uh, interventions, in, including drugs uh, in some cases. And of course, they have uh, many fewer side effects and they're a lot cheaper. Uh, so why not, why not give it a shot? And when you see where uh, mindfulness has been employed, for example, uh, in the United States Army, uh, they have this uh, MFIT program, where as part of basic training, uh, they have experimentally uh, introduced mindfulness. And there are people who want to expand it in the service. Uh, the Marines have used it. Uh, people are uh, are suggesting that first responders and uh, police uh people who are, uh, are dealing with fires and so on, uh, they should use it also. It's big in prisons now. Uh, there have been studies of uh, prisoners that, that have been done that show that those who practice mindfulness, who have been involved in mindfulness meditation are uh, less violent and have fewer uh, infractions or uh, disciplinary incidents uh, than prisoners uh, who are not in the mindfulness program. They, in, in one study that Cabot Zinnan's colleagues did um, in a tech company, they went into this tech company where, where people were just horribly unhappy. Uh, job satisfaction was really low. And they used a wait list technique where they said, all right, we everybody can get a shot at learning meditation. But for the time being, we want to take one group, teach them to meditate, and the second group will be on the wait list. They'll be taught to meditate later. And uh, so what they found in that study was not only did it it enhance job satisfaction uh, to a pretty noticeable extent, uh, but also they, they had given these people uh, flu shots uh, and uh, they found that the immune systems of the meditators were more reactive than those who didn't meditate and therefore they were much less li- likely to, uh, to get the flu. So what they were fu- finding is that uh, through that technique is that meditation can affect your autoimmune system uh, in a very positive way. So, you know, with with all these benefits of meditation, you would wonder why anyone re- would resist it. Yeah, there are certainly a variety of treatment methods being applied with mindfulness in psychology or psychiatry today. But in certain cases, do you think there's ever a wrong time to meditate for someone? Um, just thinking back to you talking about Robert Piercing's book, he had some of his own mental uh, mishaps, you might say. And I don't know if someone's in an unstable state of mind or maybe someone who is grieving or just really depressed. Are there any 
times in which mindfulness may bring them closer to trauma or pain, or is it more of a if if it's practiced right, then the benefits will follow uh, eventually. Yeah, in in Piercing's case, I don't think he meditated. <laughs> he he certainly had some uh, pretty severe psychological problems, uh, as did his son. Uh, but I don't think Piercing himself uh, meditated. I think he was uh, more a conceptual. Zen guy, uh, and never really practiced, but he he did seem. I mean, he was certainly practicing uh, mindfulness when he he was repairing the motorcycle, and talk about the gumption traps and all that. By the way, he just recently died. I think it was within uh, the last couple of weeks he passed away. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, but there there are some people. Uh, who say, look, meditation uh, isn't for everyone. People, uh, there are some people who just become uh, too introspective or they just can't sit still that long. Uh, for example, with, uh, with people who have borderline uh, personality, they, there's this uh, DBT therapy, uh, di- dialectical behavior therapy, and a component of that is mindfulness. But people with these this disease, which is a uh, severe psychiatric illness, it's one of the, the most difficult to treat, uh, cannot sit still long enough to, to meditate. But they, what they're taught in DBT is the mindfulness framework that just observe what's going on. And as you pointed out, before you can be secure in the knowledge that things are going to change, things are going to pass, all things come to pass, all things come and go. Uh, And what they found is that this is the most effective strategy for dealing with people who have borderline personality disorders, and there's nothing else that works. Drugs don't work. Uh, Other kinds of intervention, uh, interventions don't work. And with Depressives, they found that uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy uh, is very effective. Um, The idea that uh, it isn't appropriate uh, for some people, um, some therapists support, and some mindfulness teachers will support and say, look, it's just not uh, there for everyone. Others say, look, the problem isn't mindfulness, it's something else. And uh, if they stick with mindfulness uh, long enough, it can help people. You know, I'm not right, claiming so... a panacea that it's uh, it's going to do everything for everybody. I, I, uh, I certainly don't think that. I don't think perhaps mindfulness meditation isn't for everyone, but... The approach of staying in the present moment and watching it unfold, I think, can probably benefit most of us. Because, I mean, if we want to be in touch re- with reality, because that's where reality happens, is right now. It isn't always pleasant. We don't always like what happens. But 
it is what's real. Right. So in, in these cases where some people might not think it's the best treatment for them, often it should just be in addition to whatever else they're doing. Well, that's what and, it uh, is. Like yeah. with mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Mm -hmm. It's a component of cognitive therapy. So uh, you mentioned uh, depression. And that, I, I don't know a lot about depression. I'm not an expert, but I do know that the region that's overactive in these and most depressive cases is the default mode network. And meditation is actually a way of slowing that down. And not only while you're meditating do the connections wither, if you will, or they at least go down a little bit, but there seems to be an afterglow effect where, you know, hours after you're done meditating, you are having less frantic thoughts, less compulsive or neurotic, uh, basically thoughts being thrown at you all the time. Yeah, and the the important thing there, I think, Alex, is the the practice of mindfulness. Uh, one of the misconceptions uh, I've noticed that students have when I when I've introduced it to them is they think you're only mindful when you're meditating. But the whole idea of uh, the meditation is uh, you're practicing mindfulness in a very restricted way. Say if you're doing, uh, you're following your breath. All you're doing is sitting there and breathing and nothing can be simple, simpler than that. But your goal is to eventually take it off the meditation cushion and to be mindful on everything you do, to be mindful when you're eating, uh, to be mindful when you're talking to someone, uh, to be mindful when you're cooking, whatever activity you're involved in, to stay in the present uh, as much, much as you possibly can. The more you meditate, uh, the more you're going to be able to do that. Um, but the more you extend the practice to other activities, the better off you'll be in those activities uh, as well. And there are some uh, traditions where they don't meditate at all. They just practice mindfulness. Yeah, could you actually uh, just differentiate between Zen meditation and Vipassana or insight meditation briefly for those who are looking to try meditation but aren't sure which one? I mean, you can Google a meditation. You'll probably get 20 different ways to meditate. If you could just kind of broadly you know, describe that. I'm not, a, I'm not an expert, but I would... Uh... I've been to Vipassana retreats and I've been to Zen retreats. And basically the, the um, introductory meditation is the same. Uh, and also in, in both traditions, uh, you have labeling as there's the, the basic breath meditation where you just follow your breath, count the breath on the out breath and you're, you're going to lose count all the time and just start at one again and go up uh, to 10 on the exhalation. And then after that, uh, usually there's labeling and you're following the breath, but as a thought or sensation occurs, you just label it. You label it, uh, you know, sadness, uh, anxiety, or you can become very specific about it, uh, um, you know, 
angry with my mother, that kind of thing. Uh, and both in the Zen and Vipassana tradition, uh, you'll find you'll find uh, those techniques. And then after that is um, what's known as uh, Shikantaza in Zen. And that's just sitting open to anything that, that occurs. You just watch it. Or it's also known as uh, meditative inquiry, where whatever comes up, you question it, but it's not our usual method of questioning. It's not, uh, how did this happen? Or where do I go from here? Or how do I solve this problem? It's just, what is this? Or sometimes, who am I? Who is the self? But it's not the kind of analytics we're usually accustomed to. It's just sitting with the question itself or sitting with whatever comes to mind. And there's an equivalent practice in Vipassana or uh, insight meditation that's called choiceless awareness, whatever comes up. I'm less familiar with that. And here's the difference. In Zen, uh, in some, some kinds of Zen, usually the, the two uh, big schools are Soto and Rinzai. And Rinzai is the sudden enlightenment school. Soto is the graduate enlightenment school. In Rinzai Zen, uh, there's Cohen practice, like uh, what did your mother's face look like before you were born? What is the sound of one hand clapping? Uh, all those kinds of, uh, uh, they're kind of like puzzles. And what they do is get you out of rational kinds of thinking or logical kinds of thinking uh, into more open or trans-rational, transpersonal uh, style of uh, thinking. And there's a uh, uh, sudden insight uh, into it. If you sit with the question or sit with the koan, uh and it's a lot of pressure and a lot of pressure, and you try to figure it out logically and rationally, and then suddenly, supposedly, I've never had this experience, you burst through to enlightenment. Um, that that's what I see as the big difference. You don't you don't have that uh, that com that kind of uh, meditation in the uh, Vipassana tradition. However, those kinds of questions do come up. Not what's the sound of one hand clapping, but who am I? As a, is a, a Cohen. It's a question you ask yourself, it's a it's a, a puzzle. The the idea that we have a self, but when we go and try to find it, where's it located? It's gone. Yeah. And coming to terms with that is supposedly um, a kind of meditation. It's the kind of thing that would just come up naturally. Uh, in choiceless awareness or shikantaza without a uh, 
teacher or master posing different questions for you. Just who am I? What is this? And sticking with the the uh, the question, just sitting there openly with the question is a form of meditation. In the Tibetan tradition, uh, you have more visualization uh, and some techniques that, that are called uh, uh, direct pointing instructions or, or something like that. Uh, but it's, it's much more elaborate in the tradi tradi traditional uh, Tibetan traditions where they've, Buddhism came there and was, uh, was uh, combined with the existing uh, Bon religion. So you have all these gods and, uh, and so on. But, but there, I mean, basically you have uh, breath meditation, uh, you have labeling, and you have just sitting too. They're the, uh, the three ways to go about it in all three of the traditions. So I don't I don't see a a huge distinction between them, but I can't say that that's I'm that knowledgeable. I've never uh, gone to a Tibetan retreat. I have been to Vipassana retreats. Uh, the retreat center I I go to uh, at one time was a, uh, a Zen center, but the uh, teacher who is uh, just died a few years ago, uh, Tony Packer, felt that even Zen was too restrictive. If you if you really wanted a liberation, all the rituals and trappings of Zen uh, may have been limiting you in some ways. So she just did away with all that, and basically you just go there and sit or do whatever you want. They they don't really have any rules except. You have to keep quiet, and for an hour a day, you have to do your job. Otherwise, it's all up to you how you're you're going to do your practice. Yeah, that was the main difference for me. Just uh, but not, although I'm not an expert either, Zen meditation seemed more just focused on the breath, whereas Vipassana kind of spread that awareness to not just the breath, but your thoughts, sensory experiences, sounds, anything. I know you said that you've never experienced sudden enlightenment, but what is the maybe the strangest thing you've experienced while meditating? I've had countless times where I, if I'm sitting for longer than 30 minutes, I will have random childhood memories of absolutely no significance. I could randomly, I'd be sitting in the library meditating, and all of a sudden I will actually smell what the lasagna smelled like in my elementary school cafeteria. Like, obviously this isn't a meaningful event that formed me or anything? I, I was just wondering if you've experienced anything like that. It's, it's interesting to me. Uh, geez, I've never, I've, uh, never had uh, an olfactory memory, memory in my life unless it was stimulated uh, by, by something other than meditating. Um, you know, for, for the most part, uh, on the recommendation of, uh, of teachers, uh, I've discounted any of those kinds of experiences. Like, like you said, they're, they're not significant. So uh, I don't treat them as uh, significant. You know, I had 
uh, a couple of times where uh, I've had some experience of oneness, I'd say, uh, and some uh, kind of overwhelming uh, feelings of, uh, of love and compassion, uh, which were very nice. Uh, but the, the whole idea and uh, both um, I have, um, Roddy used to be a member of, he lived in San, San Diego for a few years and was a member of the San Diego uh, Zen Center. And uh, the two teachers out there, uh, Ezra Beta and uh, Elizabeth Hamilton, were very good and very specific about those kinds of things where they say, yeah, you know, all kinds of things are going to come up. Uh, you may have all kinds of special experiences, but they're just like anything else. They're here, they're gone. Let them go and get back to the moment. Don't dwell on them. And it, it sounds that that's how you handled that experience. But I've, I've never had anything like smelling the lasagna. From, yeah, it's good. Uh, I could have actually smelled someone else's lasagna and that's what triggered it. But definitely it's like a vision, right? It's um, taken... I, I normally meditate with my eyes closed mm -hmm. and it's often that comes up and then I realize I'm there and I, you know, I come back to the present moment. But this, and is, away. this has come up more than once. The, not the lasagna. No, <laughs> but definitely like older childhood memories. Oh, good. Played, you know, over glad, 10 years ago, I'd say. I'm glad the lasagna smell of the, the lasagna isn't coming up every time you meditate or I, <laughs> you had some kind of brain olfactory disorder. Uh, yeah, all, I mean, all kinds of stuff will, you know, come up. The you know, time, you know, Joey Malone said my uh, baseball swing wasn't even or as good as his, and I was mad at him when I was seven, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, but it enters your mind. You recognize it for what you what it is. Just look at it, and it dissipates, and you get back to what you're doing in the moment, which is just sitting and breathing, or sitting sitting and labeling your thoughts, or just watching anything come that comes up. And uh, I think it was Suzuki, the guy who wrote uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, who said that uh, it was either him or Charlotte Joko Beck, who was also a Zen teacher, said that uh, uh, Zen is basically adult education. What you're, lear you're learning about yourself and how the mind works and how you respond to the world. And you're forever learning and learning and learning and then just coming back to where you are. And I, I always thought that was a pretty good description of it. No, it's a, the, the whole thing is a, it's just a process. And as with everything, if you want to be in the moment, your focus is on the process and not the results. The results will take care of themselves. Yeah, it is a process. Um, and that was another good section of your book was about um, taking the time that you need. Uh, and that was in regards to the section on procrastination. Uh, and you said how it's important to take the time that you think you'll need and then double it um, for an assignment um, or whatnot. But I think 
I'd like to get your take on it um, for students or anyone who might be interested in getting involved in meditation um, who feel like they don't have time, feel like they're always pressed for time um, because of any social obligations or work they have to do and the classes they have to attend. At the end of the day, they feel like they don't, they might not actually have time. Um, so what would you say to somebody who is making the argument but also still would like to get involved um, in meditating or mindfulness? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic. A lot, a lot of students don't have time today because uh, well, school, school is so expensive that uh, a much, much greater proportion of the student body has to have at least a part-time job uh, than back when I was in school a million years ago. So people are a lot busier and there are a lot of competing activities, you know, social media. Uh, people seem to uh, spend a lot of time on that and uh, feel that they have to, uh, to be involved and so on. What I would say, and what others have said, including uh, Guy, Ezra Biden, and Elizabeth Hamilton, who both Roddy and I consider uh, our teachers would say, look, if you can only do it for five minutes a day, just sit for five minutes a day. Uh, more importantly, I would say, you know what the practice of mindfulness involves, which is paying attention to the present moment, non-judgmentally, and just keep coming back to what you're doing in the present when you find that you're wandering. Just do that in everything you do. And that may be even more effective for you than taking, say, 30 or 45 minutes a day to meditate or meditating more than once a day. So sit for whatever time you can, even if it's one minute. But the thing is, remember to be mindful if you can, or try to be mindful uh, in everything you do. And I, I think that would be my response. Do you have anything I, I totally to agree. That? Pardon? I totally agree with that. And I, I like how you mentioned social media. There's actually a recent study by Nokia that said smartphone users of our generation, Katie and I are about 20 years old, 21. We check our phones more than 150 times a day. And a lot of that is not mindful checking. It's just, it's mindless is exactly what it is. We just pick it up because we feel like we have to. So I was wondering how you think mindfulness might change the way we use technology um, very similar to the way piercing was approaching the motorcycle i guess what you're what you're doing with the when you do that uh, or when anyone does that when you keep checking your phone or checking your email or you know every time a ping goes off you go and you read an email or you read the message and so on is you're being mindless because you're obviously you're involved in something else when you get that signal uh, that you have a message or you'll be involved in something else and uh, you, you go to Facebook or Snapchat or what, whatever it is, uh, you're letting yourself be pulled away instead of, say, say if you have the, uh, you're bored and while you're studying and you know, boredom occurs, instead of just recognizing, gee, boredom is here, uh, and observing it 
and then bringing your mind back to what you're doing or doing whatever you're doing with boredom. It just happens to be part of it during the study session. Um, if you go to Facebook, then you're really away from the moment. You're in a different moment. Uh, so the idea is just to recognize that uh, you know you you don't you don't have to read the message. Uh, you don't have to go to Facebook because you're you're bored. You're aware of what's happening, and you just let it be, and that boredom will pass, and you can refocus on what you're doing in the moment. Uh, but it's very difficult. I mean, the um, with uh, social media uh, is very enticing, isn't it? Yes, it's certainly made procrastination a lot easier. And I find it funny that people actually pride themselves in their procrastination nowadays. And some people will even go as far as to say that it's necessary or imperative for their brain, as if waiting to start the essay at 2 a.m. is just what they need to kick them into overdrive. I used, to be, it, one. I used to be one of those people. <laughs> yes, yeah, just one more Netflix episode before we start this paper. Uh, so if someone's trying to dismantle that illusion, because obviously... The, or sorry, the book recommends that there is no right time and that if you approach it with right effort, whenever you do it, as long as you're in the moment and actually doing it to the best of your ability, it shouldn't actually matter whether it's 8 a.m. on a Monday or 2 a.m. on a Friday. And there's actually a, a lot of cognitive science that says that our brains are not at optimal efficiency at 2 a.m. when we're sleep-deprived. So how, how again, to rephrase the question... In a, in a simple way, what can the procrastinator do to realize uh, their illusion? Well, I think just what you said. My, my mistake was I always thought that I, that I needed the pressure mm -hmm. uh, in order to motivate me to you know, break the paper or develop the presentation or study for the exam. Uh, and it usually backfired. I, I wouldn't have enough, I wouldn't feel well prepared. I wouldn't have enough time uh, to do what I needed to do. So the notion is, I mean, it's it's a misconception uh, to think that you have to keep putting something off that can be harmful to you if you keep uh, putting it off uh, in order to muster enough motivation to get it done. It just isn't necessary, and you're much better off uh, doing it early, uh, planning it out, doing it in uh, small bits, doing uh, crucial parts of uh, a project when they're due so you're not stuck with everything at the end. You know, I, other than that, I don't think I'd know what to uh, uh, tell people. I mean, you know, of course, there are... Uh, Everybody procrastinates, but I think it's something like uh, three quarters of procrastinators that are, are involved in what's known as simple uh, procrastination. But there are uh, chronic forms of it. For example, uh, perfectionism, where uh, people never think it's good enough, uh, and that's uh, more complicated kind of. Uh, uh, procrastination and obviously perfectionism is a trait, so it's personality related. Uh, and 
the idea is that uh, the sense of self is involved where people think that there's an expectation of them that everything has to be perfect. And the problem is perfection is not an achievable goal. It just, it isn't. Nothing can ever be perfect. But if people are perfectionist, uh, they never think it's good enough. I, I even had a friend in uh, graduate school. He was the star of my class. And this guy never got his PhD because he never thought his work was good enough. He started a dissertation, I'd say five or six different times under different professors and never completed it. He never handed in a final final product because he never thought it was good enough. I think that's very common in uh, graduate programs for people to feel like they're an imposter or a fraud because, you know, they're coming into something that a lot of other people have decades of experience and they're trying to set something out into the world. Right. But yeah, it is exactly. But also, he well, I mean, that the, the idea that uh, uh, a lot of people have this notion, even very successful people have this notion that there's they're frauds and they're eventually going to be found out and they're terrorized by uh, this guy. There was an expectation. He, he thought there was an expectation by others, uh, the professors did expect very good work from this guy because he was a very bright guy, uh, the work they saw from him. Uh, but also he had an expectation that uh, he would do the best work and he wasn't prepared to let it go uh, until it was perfect. And with something like that, uh, you know, you, it's actually probably an inflated sense of self if you expect yourself to do, and you think everybody else is uh, expecting you to do perfect work or everything you're gonna do uh, is innovative or also a fear of failure uh, or fear of risk-taking. Uh, in any event, people have to, I guess, learn that they're, they're unrealistic uh, expectations and at some time they just have to let go and also kind of detached sense of self uh, from what they're, they're, they're doing. Um, you know, if they fail, it's not a big deal. People really may not care that much and they can learn a lot from failing, which is unlikely for, uh, for most of these people. A lot of perfectionists are, uh, are very talented people. They just can't let go. Yeah, I want to kind of touch more on the the sense of self. This is something Katie and I disagree with wholeheartedly, and we talk about it all the time. Uh, you know, I ascribe to the no self teachings of Eastern philosophy, and a lot of people think that that's a scary thing. And you know, the ego just wants to protect itself. They want to feel like a self. And even in most cases of mindfulness today, at, at a very rudimentary level, it's being taught as if you are the self that is just being more mindful. But to me, the real practice of mindfulness reveals the the inherent selflessness of consciousness, as I like to call it. So do you think people are missing out on the full benefits of meditation practice by clinging to the self? And uh, if not, why? Um, well, who who is it that benefits 
from meditation if there is no self. Right. <laughs> now, I, Alex, I, I struggle with the same questions that uh, you and Katie do. And I've been doing, I'm almost 70 years old, and I've been doing this stuff for a long time. And these questions arise again and again and again and again. And I think they always will until I no longer have a mind to be mindful. Uh, and the idea is that, you know, that's the rub with this whole thing. And um, that's the reason why some people object to the use of med meditation to, uh, you know, learn how to surf better, learn how to drive a car better, learn how to dance better, uh, all these practical applications of uh, mindfulness uh, meditation. Some people think that that just enhances sense of self, that the better I get it at performing, uh, the more status myself has or the better I feel about this self that, that I call me and so on. And these experts think that it's a misapplication of mindfulness because the real purpose is to learn that there isn't a self. There is a conditioned self, but that's not the real self, uh, according to that uh, perspective. The Roddy and I worried about this uh, when we were writing the book. Well, actually, after we wrote the book, that it's the idea of, uh, you know, you, could you teach someone to mindfully murder somebody else? Is it an appropriate uh, application of mindfulness if that's the result? Uh, or if it's enhancing sense of self, which according to some traditions is an illusion, uh, is that actually what mindfulness should be used for? Isn't that counterproductive if, uh, if the whole idea is that there's this realization or opening to the fact that there really isn't a self as we traditionally think of it, that there's this me, there's, there's some core personality uh, that's unchanging. Uh, and that's, that's the whole rub. Uh, and the conclusion that Roddy and I came to is, look, introduce people to the technique let them sit, let them try to be mindful. And it is hoped that if you do it long enough uh, that you have this insight of it's not a self or a self or not a self. Uh, it's kind of a maybe a non-self that in the moment the there's a you, there's a, a physical organism 
uh, but you, you're conditioned by everything around you. And there's there may be a self, I don't want to throw out the concept of the self because it's useful, but it changes from moment to moment. So don't think you're always going to be that guy because you're not. I mean, that, that was the basically the, the insight of Buddha was everything changes. And usually either we don't want things to change or we want them to change faster. And so the Buddha was saying, well, you're out of luck there because the reality is that everything is going to change. Everything that's alive uh, is going to get sick, is going to grow old, is going to die, is going to experience pain. Uh, there's no way around it. So by wanting things not to change or wanting things to change more rapidly for yourself is an illusion that causes suffering. It causes, we're, we're uneasy about it. Uh, we're anxious about it. We're aggravated about it just because we're born human and we don't want to die, but we have to. So you're better off recognizing that the self does change over time, moment to moment, uh, as does your body and everything else, and not try to resist it. So yeah, I think we've came to a similar conclusion, and we just kind of get bogged up on the definition, but we have pretty much agreed at this point that there is no rigid, unchanging self, right. but there is this thing that's constantly being molded. If we could just ask one more existential question before we have to say goodnight. I think our laptop is actually <laughs> nearly overheating. But well, one thing I encounter during meditation, uh, mindfulness, anything, even just life, is that I, I feel like I have no control over my thoughts and I'm more of just like an antenna and I'm receiving them. So I feel like I don't make my own thoughts. And being influenced by you know, other authors other philosophies, and the I'm not sure if you're aware of the Libet experiments. I'm not sure if I'm saying this. No, I'm not. Okay, uh, basically it's a free will experiment, and I'm going to do my best to sum it up, but essentially they hooked up, uh, I think, an EEG scan on people and told them to, they had a mouse and a computer, so they said, okay, click this dot. Whenever you want, you can make the decision. It's yours. If you have free will, you should be able to decide it and say, okay, now I'm going to make this decision, and then they'll click it. And they found that seconds before they actually become conscious of their decision, the neural, the same neural projections fire as if you had, you know, you just made the decision. So, I mean, I did a, <laughs> you might want to look up the experiment if you actually want to understand it. Yeah. But do you, Could you ascribe uh, to free will or no free will? What? Just, we just want to know your stance on that as a Especially as someone who studied criminology, because it's such a has pretty vast ethical implications. I don't know if I ever thought about it. Um, I guess from a Buddhist perspective, that you would say that everything is conditioned. The the self you are today is conditioned by a number of factors, including uh, 
genetics, but a lot of it is conditioned by uh, your past behavior. And the self you're going to be in the future uh, is going to be conditioned by your current behavior. Uh, there is an assumption, I think, in Buddhism that you're the one, if the, well, can't really say that, that you do make choices. Uh, but they're, they're structured by uh, what's happened to you in the past, uh, socially, culturally, psychologically, genetically, and so on. Uh, I've never thought specifically about the, uh, the concept of uh, free will in Buddhism. But now that I do think of it, it seems that one, one approach is you look at the situation you're in now, and it can't be otherwise, can it? Now, I mean, some, some of the reason you're there is because maybe because you've exercised choice. If we want to call that free will, okay. But right here, right now, we can't be any place else. Very yeah. hard to dispute. Thank you so much, Jake, for your time. All and right. again, to our, our listeners, if you want to find the book, it is The Mindful Way to Study, Dancing with Your Books. You can find it on Amazon. And we'll include a link on the information below. And listen, I want I want you to feel free. I, I sent you an electronic copy of that, right? A Word document or a PDF yes. of the book. Send that to anybody you want to. Rowdy and I aren't uh, trying to make money on this. We're just trying to kind of get the word out. But th thanks a lot, both of you. I really appreciate it, Katie and Alex. And maybe Thank we can talk again someday. We would love to. Definitely. Okay, bye-bye.